welcome to this latest episode of Disrupt Podcast, which is the first of a very special two-parter looking at Africa's fintech sector, the innovations that are being built, the challenges they're overcoming, and the support and funding ecosystem that is driving fintech's growth on the continent. It is released in partnership with Azar Finance, Revio, Emergo Middle East and Africa, and Moneyhash, and representatives of those companies will be lending their expertise to help us navigate this fascinating and crucial sector. We hope you enjoy it. Fintech is big business indeed in Africa, as it is globally, but its relevance in Africa is all the greater because of the fundamental issues surrounding access to financial services on the continent. Earlier this year, Disrupt Africa released the fourth edition of its fintech-focused research publication, Finnovating for Africa, which placed the sector at the very heart of Africa's tech innovation space. It tracked 678 active fintech ventures, far more than any other vertical, and a number that represented growth of 18% from the previous edition of the report in 2021. The fintech sector also leads the continent for funding. Since Disrupt Africa began tracking funding in the African tech startup space in 2015, 540 fintech startups from 25 countries have raised an extraordinary 3.6 billion US dollars, three times more than any other sector. Total investment per year has been on a fairly steady upward trajectory since 2016, yet growth has been especially impressive in the last two years. The number of funded ventures has almost doubled since 2021, and more than $2.7 billion has flooded into the ecosystem in the last 24 months alone. Not only are African fintech startups more likely to raise funding than their peers, they're also more likely to be acquired or accepted into accelerated programs. The high levels of activity and investment in the African fintech sector come as no surprise. Financial exclusion is high. Over 350 million adults in sub-Saharan Africa live cash to cash with no bank account. Approximately 500 million people do not have proof of legal identity, something most banks require to open an account in the first place. Drill down into other, more developed forms of financial services, and the figures are even worse. Insurance penetration, for example, hovers around the 2% mark. Shogo Ishida is co-CEO of Emergo Middle East and Africa, which invests in and partners with Africa-focused enterprises, startups and accelerators to foster the development of socially impactful solutions on the Cardano blockchain. He lays out the scale of Africa's lack of financial inclusion. Definitely. Uh, so in the realm of the financial inclusion, uh, so-called, uh, the global landscape presents uh, myriad challenges not uh, you know confined solely to Africa but you know, developing countries uh, the, the comprehensively uh, in a particular sort of you know the people has like, a lot of a problem to access to the you know, very basic and finance uh, the, the financial services especially in like, sub-Saharan Africa like, from our experience you know home to like, many of the world's uh, the list of nations uh, content we see a persistent uh, obstacle to individual financial inclusion um, it's 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 noteworthy that uh, within the United Nations, you know, 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, uh, eight out of the 17 goals revolve and around the critical similarity to the financial inclusions. Um, so then, uh, let's say like in among the uh, uh, you know the current like the statistics in the, by the World Bank, uh, like roughly like 35 percent of an individual over the age of 14 in Sub-Saharan Africa possessing a bank account. So that means like, you know, the two thirds of the population without a bank access. Um, to be fair, some individuals without a con- conventional bank accounts have still like, managed to secure financial services through the mobile platform like an M-Pesa. However, even when accounting for these alternative avenues, um, substantial 57% of the population still grapples with financial exclusion, which includes the mobile money access. 
fintechs, or so they believe, have the answer and are springing up all over the continent, increasingly well-funded in a bid to provide Africans with access to payments, lending, credit and insurance services. As we shall hear, blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies are also increasingly embedded. Nicole Dunn is co-founder and COO of South Africa's Revio, an end-to-end payment orchestration platform that reduces complexity, cost and risk of payment operations in Africa via a simple API. She says what is exciting about fintech in Africa is that innovators are not solving for convenience, as they would be in other parts of the world, but rather for inclusion, access and infrastructure. It's widely known that South Africa and African countries are predominantly cash-based. There's The majority of the population is still unbanked. They're not able to access financial services such as credit and even products like insurance and typical savings and wealth management solutions are really inaccessible. Much of the challenge around banking Africa stems from the lack of personal identification systems on the continent. 69% of the individuals in sub-Saharan Africa for the some sort of the uh, you know the valid identification, uh, this in turn implies, and of course, exercise that thirty-one percent of the population lacks any form of the identification. The absence of a proper identification results in uh, inability to provide a verifiable personal identity regarding basic KYC and procedure impractical. So this predicament significantly restricting access to the financial services because if you don't have like a property, how could you open like, like a bank account or how could you have an access to the, you know, all the awesome method of the financial services? The lack of access is hugely damaging from both social and economic outlooks, especially for lower income individuals or people working in the informal economy. I can't interact with the formal economy. I can't get a home loan. I can't purchase an asset. But I think the more pervasive impact is that People who are not today part of the financial system are consistently penalized for it because the formal sector is not able to price their risk. So I don't have any data on this customer today because they consistently transact in cash rather than digitally. That means when I give them a loan or when I offer them an insurance policy, I either don't offer it to them because I don't have enough data to make that decision or I price them at an extremely high premium because I'm not able to properly understand the risk profile of that customer, which then creates this vicious cycle because as a customer, I'm consistently locked out or I build a poor credit record because I don't make my payments on time in the way that that merchant is expecting, even though I have the willingness and ability to pay. And so people who are not financially included remain excluded and they pay a higher premium for almost everything. I mean, you see this in something very simple like phone data and minutes, right? It's much cheaper if I'm on a recurring subscription package or contract and much more expensive per gigabyte of data if I'm buying pay-as-you-go. But because I'm not able to, because I don't have a predictable income on a monthly basis. And because I don't have a credit profile, I'm not able to get that subscription. And so I remain in a place where I pay a premium for a basic good and service. There are also challenges faced by businesses, especially when it comes to making international payments, which is hugely challenging. Elizabeth Rossiello is co-founder and CEO of Azza Finance, an African fintech company offering secure and efficient financial infrastructure for payments, foreign exchange and settlement. The company has been operating in Africa for over a decade, originally as BitPesa, and Rossiello knows how constraints on access to financial services have hurt businesses for years. 
I think global companies who have to make payments from Africa to Asia or from Africa to Europe or from Africa to the United States, it's so cumbersome. And it's not because these companies are not compliant. It's because the compliance documents start to go on the level of absurdity. We're talking 10 to 15 compliance documents we collect for each one of our wholesale trades. Now, we do it, but imagine a brick-and-mortar bank having to collect 10 to 15 documents for every transaction, store them, and then share them with every bank and correspondent bank on that fund flow chain. So if a company out of Ghana is making an international payment to Germany, they have to have their documents collected by the local bank. They have to be passed on to the correspondent bank and passed on as well. So everybody likes to talk about SWIFT and, you know, the speed of the, the transaction. But what about the compliance documents that go alongside of it? All those things are really tough. Shogo agrees here. More than 94% of the, uh, you know, um, the, the, the companies in Africa are basically uh, the SMEs or like uh, micro SMEs. Um, so then if you don't have any access, well, that, that's significantly also affecting, you know, the, you know, the lack of financial access to the, to, you know, to the small businesses. Uh, it's important to note that, uh, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa lags behind other regions in terms of the access to the finance with a mere 20% of the firms having a bank loan or the line of credit uh, in the year of the 2020. Um, of course, in addition to, the, to these challenges in Africa's SMEs and face uh, um, the 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 level of the vulnerability when confronted with a major crisis such as you know COVID-19 pandemic. It's a well-told story, but you simply can't talk about fintech in Africa without mentioning Mpesa, the advent of which essentially launched the industry on the continent. Rolled out in Kenya in 2007 by leading mobile operator Safaricom, it allowed individuals to send money to each other using only their mobile number, essentially banking millions of people for the first time. A revolutionary concept, it saw extraordinary uptake, with the most recent figures showing 2,600 transactions take place via Mpesa every second. The service was launched in a host of other African markets, while copycat services also arrived, with many mobile money services now interoperable. Emergo Middle East Africa co-CEO Ahmed Aimer says M-Pesa was a revelation as it provided for the first time infrastructure that much of the world takes for granted, but Africa at that point largely lacked. A lot of the internal systems and processes and tools and legacy infrastructure that you know is present in more developed markets like the United States and Europe and Asia um, isn't quite present in frontier markets, namely Africa. Um, the majority of Africans don't have bank accounts. Uh, when M-Pesa started, uh, you know, around 15 years ago now, maybe a little longer, that was a revolution, and it still is a revolution to this day because it basically enabled mobile money to um, create financial inclusion. It was a game changer in other ways too, says Elizabeth. I think 100% M-Pesa changed the game for a bunch of reasons. First of all, we never saw growth like that, that quickly, and we never saw that much data. So one thing that the Safaricom experiment did was it came at a time where the data was tracked. It was so explosive it was very easy to communicate that success. So DFID, the development arm of the UK government and all the other development banks and the UN and the World Bank and CGAP all jumped on it 
because, you know, the big bane of the development world is that so much work, not a lot of data that clearly shows things always work. You know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So this was just like this beautiful data set um, that everybody jumped on. And, you know, when you have that, it just attracts a ton of attention. And then that's just kind of a waterfall effect. An immediate associated impact was an increase in investment from telecoms companies and banks. And I think that just gave investors the courage to pour money into the space. And we saw then the French telcos, we saw then the the Scandi telcos, the Indian telcos, all pour money into the continent after that, which was awesome. And then we saw the banks try to follow the telcos' success and pour money into that. And, you know, even some corporates get in on it. So, I mean, that one data set of the first three, four years of M-Pesa was revolutionary in attracting so much capital to the continent. Mobile money in general is a great domestic retail solution. I always say that it's comparable to a debit card. You use it for daily transactions. You know, I lived in Kenya seven years during the height of this. I used it for my groceries. I used it for small payments. I used it to pay salaries. I even used it to buy airplane tickets or school fees up to about $1,500 at a time. Other markets have higher limits. I believe in Ghana at one point, the limit was $2,500. And in Uganda, it was $800. So it really depends. But generally around those household payments, all the way down to two cents, one cent, it makes a lot of sense. It's very economical. It's essentially your debit card. It does have its limits, however. Now, anything out of the country, anything that you have to pay internationally on a website, anything, you know, in a larger amount, you can't use it for. Secondly, it's owned by a corporation. So your entire debit card system is a closed loop. You can't pay from one to the other. So the two big obvious problems are transaction size, as you said. And secondly, interoperability with other systems, um, including those internationally. And, you know, that's really where the limit is. And once, you know, we had high-speed internet come onto the continent, people started shopping online, you needed the fintechs to connect the mobile money to those online ecosystem. And what we did early days of the PESA is we collected, we connected M-PESA with other currencies and M-PESA with digital currencies. And we were able to send money and move business payments all around the world. So BitPESA, as Aza Finance was then called, and a host of other companies started building on top of the M-PESA network or building alternative solutions. The fintech revolution had begun, inspired by the telecoms, but with a momentum all of its own, moving beyond the mobile wallets. Web wallets were the way that we got out of our mobile money. And, you know, web wallets or teenagers or young people who have never touched mobile money wallet and just use a wallet that's connected to the internet, that was, you know, a huge step forward for a lot of people. Nicole says there have been a great variety of solutions built beyond mobile money to increase access to finance. More broadly, there's been really interesting new payment solutions, remittances solutions, agency banking type of solutions and alternative data type of solutions that start to bridge that gap so that more of the continent's population can access financial services and really at least establish that basic capability of being able to transact and engage with the financial system. There has been huge progress in the last few years in terms of simple access to finance, but access to additional services like credit is still lacking, especially for businesses, and that's damaging for the continent. Here's Elizabeth. Access to finance has improved in the last decade tremendously. Mobile money has helped a lot with that. Banks have downscaled. Um, MFIs, microfinance institutions have upscaled. I think access to a basic wallet um, 
basic deposit is improved dramatically. So I won't talk about that. There's a lot of people solving that. I think access to credit, not in a micro level, but in a business level, is still very much lacking. We work with companies who are doing remittances, who are making payments, who are providing NGO services, who are providing basic import-export, and they can't even get, you know, like a, a credit line for a basic working capital need. This is strangling the growth of the African economy. You know, you have very large companies like Coca-Cola or you know, and very, very small micro players being served. But everybody in the middle who needs anything from a $10,000, you know, payment or working capital all the way up to a million dollars really struggles. And a big part of that is because people are afraid to invest in these markets in local currencies. They're afraid to invest in these markets where the currency fluctuates. There's no long-term hedges. So if they invest now in Cameroon, how will they get their money back out in two to three years? you end up seeing a lot of development lending still in U.S. dollar. And that's not what these businesses need because then who's going to carry that risk? So we really are focused on that problem in the middle. Fundamentally, being able to simply make payments is a pivotal part of life, but the problems go beyond that. It's a part of it. I mean, payments is a part of all commerce, right? So, you know, Netflix is on the continent now media distribution is on the continent now um, in a way that we haven't seen before, unprecedented. Amazon is in the continent now. It's not just Jumia. You know, those guys need payments to to grow. So in that sense, yes. But I do think that there's something fundamentally African about some fintechs because the risk assessment is different. Insurance, we don't have insurance models for the African continent that really work at scale. Beyond the impact on individuals, African businesses have generally been left behind by the traditional banking sector, she said. I think a lot of the banks on the continent, like the banks everywhere else, you know, in Europe and the U.S., are not really focused on serving business as well. It's a tough market. You can make a lot more money in retail because you can acquire customers quicker um, and you can charge higher margins. You know, businesses are tricky. Each one is different. It takes takes a while to KYC them and onboard them and understand their needs. I think there's just a tremendous lack of capacity at the local brick and mortar banks for that. Fintech again are some of the answers here, creating an exciting new B2B sector. What's exciting is that a lot of these businesses are now turning to each other and we're finally seeing a boom in B2B fintechs and B2B startups in general. And that's exciting. I mean, you know, in the US or Europe, you see all these enterprise level unicorns think that's what we're missing on the continent. We're going to see that happen maybe in the next 10 years. As fintech in Africa develops, it's moving beyond simply access to payments and bolting on other products and services. Here's Nicole. We're starting to see more and more focus and development is around access. So access to markets, access to the economy, access to goods and services, whether that's through solutions like buy now, pay later, or enabling pay-as-you-go models uh, for services that have typically been subscription or upfront or commerce enablement solutions that are enabling the informal sector to access new markets or bring people into more of the formalized value chain and bring structures into historically quite disorganized, uh, inefficient markets where there's a lot of middlemen activity that pushes up the price, uh, especially for the end consumer. The rails laid by the likes of Paystack and Flutterwave then 
are allowing successor entrepreneurs to focus on building alternative solutions rather than having to build the whole value chain themselves. There'll be more and more companies building on top of some of the foundational infrastructure that players like Flutterwave and Paystack have built when it comes to payments in particular, but also start to see more niche players that either focus on a certain industry use case or start to decouple the value chain in an interesting way, uh, like we're seeing you know, in payments, looking at not only payment processing, but looking at checkout optimization or looking at reconciliation or revenue recognition. Uh, and I'm really excited to see how that plays out. African fintech companies then are innovating access across the value chain, solving primarily access and affordability challenges, but increasingly innovating in other areas as well. A nice moment to take a pause there and draw to a close the first episode of our two-part deep dive into the African fintech space. Many thanks to Azza Finance, Revio, Emergo Middle East and Africa and MoneyHash for making it possible. Next week in episode two, we'll dig into the issues fintechs face in scaling their innovative solutions across the continent and how they're working with investors, incumbents and governments to achieve real scale. For now, though, bye-bye.